So the section we talked through today is um, Genesis chapters 18 and 19. And I'm just going to read the, um, the section about the destruction of the cities, uh, starting in chapter 19, verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrown of, of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. In case we haven't met, my name is James Walden and I'm one of the elders here at Riverside. Um, uh, but uh, I hope maybe to meet you after the service and again to invite you to join us at 1134 the Discover Riverside Lunch, if you are newer. There's a quote that I re-encountered recently um, that struck me. Um, and I, th I thought about it here in our passage this morning. This is the Crossroads class is dismissed, apparently. <clears throat> Children's Church, sorry. Children's Church, not Crossroads. Here we go. This was from a, a, a French uh, poet, novelist named uh, Leon Blois, and he famously said this, the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is not to become a saint. Surely he's right. The obverse side of that truth, I think, was articulated by Jesus of Nazareth when his disciples came back ex excited by the fact that even the demonic spirits were subject to them. Jesus says, yes, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, but do, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you in my name. Rejoice in this. Your names are written in the book of heaven. This is the only thing worth rejoicing in. And therefore, to not have our names in the book of life is the only true and lasting tragedy. And yet, the New Testament also speaks of a, of a sadness that can even attend this great joy of being a heaven-bound believer. To be a saint whose sainthood is underrealized criminally underrealized even in this life. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, there's only one foundation, and that's Christ Jesus. But you can build on that foundation with different kinds of materials. Those who build with gold and silver and precious metals, and others will build with wood and stubble and straw. And when the day is revealed, and it will be revealed by fire, their work will be tested in that fire. Whatever burns up will be lost. Whatever survives will be our great reward. 
He says, some will enter into the joy of their king with this reward, rejoicing. Others, he says, will find their work burned up and will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, Paul said, but only as one snatched from the fire. In our passage this morning, Lot will be saved from the judgment by the skin of his teeth, but he will smell of smoke and worse, will suffer disastrous loss. Abraham, on the other hand, is not only saved, waiting from a safe distance, even as he seeks the welfare of the cities of the plains, he himself is further blessed. He becomes more and more the saint God's called him to be. Here we see not two pathways through the judgment of God, salvation and destruction, but three. One is utter ruin, the destiny of the cities of man. The other is utter glory, the story of Abraham, an imperfect saint walking by faith. The third, Lot, saved as through fire, but suffering real loss, singed with significant loss. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray you would show us wonderful things. Not only would our eyes be delighted as we read what your wisdom teaches us, but our hearts would be instructed and we would become more and more the saints you've called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the, the ancient rabbis made this conjecture. They often talked about how Abraham and Lot almost were identical in looks, that they, they, were, they could be confused as brothers, even though one was a nephew. And I have no idea where these, from the historical record where they got this notion, but I do have an idea of where they may have speculated that. And that's because in Genesis, Abraham and Lot are often compared and contrasted. We see at the beginning of our, of our narrative here with Abraham and Lot that Abraham and Lot are both in the land of Ur. When God calls Abraham, Lot goes with him. Lot goes with Abraham down into Egypt, back out of Egypt with even more material blessing. They, bat, they both are so blessed, remember, that they're stressed. They start fighting with each other because they're, they're, they have so much cattle, people, real estate occupation that they just cannot, they can't coexist. They have too much stuff. So they look very similar, but they take very different paths, right? Lot sees with his eyes that the land of Sodom looks like paradise. Abraham walks by faith. These two men look very much alike, but they couldn't be more different. And their legacies could not be more different. So let's take a look. On the screen, uh, referenced here by uh, Nate earlier, the, the hospitality of Abraham. <clears throat> this is in chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, if you're looking in your Bibles. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, and as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, in the middle of the day, noon, 
He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. The author of Hebrews says some have entertained angels unaware. Abraham is not unaware of who he's entertaining. Whatever these three men looked like, it was clear they were divine. Let a little water be brought and, and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And watch this. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fl fine flour. Three sayas is roughly equivalent to 20 to 25 quarts of flour. I don't know how much bread that makes, but I'm guessing it's more than enough to feed three guys. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and then he stood by them under the tent while they ate. Abraham here is the model of ancient Near Eastern hospitality. He absolutely overwhelms them with the best he has to offer. He moves quickly, but his hospitality is not rushed. It's extravagant. Now, compare with Lot, who encounters two of these three men, the two angels who go into the city. Very similar responses and yet very different. Very similar, but very different. Look, on, this is chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. The two angels came into Sodom in the evening. Almost a contrast there between day when Abraham entertains them and night when Lot entertains them. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Elders who sat in the gate were typically men of influence. It seems Lot has climbed the social ladder, sits in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, notice the comparison. He rose up to meet them. He bowed himself with his face to the earth, just like Abraham did. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Again, model ancient Near Eastern hospitality. This is in a, in a time when there wasn't hotels or no inns. So the hospitality to strangers was critical and it was a vital social virtue. And here we see Lot practicing this social virtue. Then you might rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we want to spend the night in the town square. But Lot pressed them, probably because he knew something they didn't know. And he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast, and he baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, unleavened bread wouldn't have been uncommon, but it was a quick meal. In fact, unleavened bread would have been ringing in the ears of the original readers of Genesis who were brought out of the land of Egypt, and their last meal in Egypt was the feast of unleavened bread. Unleavened, why? Because you had to make it in haste to get out of Dodge. And so this perhaps suggests a rather meager feast compared to Abraham's. Lot's hospitality is rushed perhaps even forced, 
compared to Abraham's eager and rich hospitality. What is the significance of this? It's this. When God shows up in your life, how do you respond? You know, it's interesting. Right after God, uh, Abraham has this feast with the three men, they, they get up after they eat and are satisfied and they walk on their way to Sodom. And God stops and says to the other two men, because it's the Lord and two angels, and he says, shall I not show Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I not let him in on my counsel? It reminds me of what Jesus says to the disciples. No longer do I call you servants, for servants don't know what their master's doing. Instead, I call you my friends, for all that the Father has told me I have shared with you. Twice the prophets declare Abraham to have been the friend of God. So God, having enjoyed the fellowship of friendship with Abraham, a deep I mean, have you ever, you ever sat around a table with friends? I know with COVID it's been a while. And you just had really rich food and good wine and you cry and you laugh. Have you ever done that? I hope you have. That's the normal Christian life. <laughs> That's what Abraham was doing with Yahweh, with the Lord. And the Lord stops in his tracks and says, wait a second, Abraham's my friend. I'm going to share with him what I'm about to do. And so he reveals to Abraham his plan to, to, to investigate. There's a cry of the oppressed against the oppressive people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, I'm going to go investigate to bring judgment, to bring justice to the city. But Abraham's hospitality to God is rich and full and excited and eager. He can't wait to dine with God. How often is our hospitality with God more like Lot's? It's there, but more perfunctory, more rushed. How quick I am to move on from my morning prayers to check the news feed. How quick I am to move on from the feast of God's Word to get on with the day. But God has invited us to be his friends. In fact, listen to what Jesus tells the churches in Revelation. Look, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone would open up, I will come into him and sit down and eat with him. Jesus is knocking at the door. Are you sitting down with him and enjoying the feast? Well, Lot's hospitality takes a dark turn here. Continuing in 19, verse 4. But before they go to sleep that night, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. Do you get the picture? They surround the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men that came with you tonight? Bring them out that we might know them. This is like the biblical sense of no, like Adam knew Eve, and they conceived. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door behind him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. <clears throat> Lot here is behaving righteously. Right? He is seeking to protect these divine guests who have come under his roof, his shelter. 
This is what Second Peter says. By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, he declares Lot righteous, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, Peter concludes. So there's a sense in which, tr- which Lot sees the wickedness, abhors it, and here even rebukes them. So there is a relative righteousness to Lot here. But it goes on. Verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, if reading that is deeply disturbing to you and even disgusting, you are quite right. That Lot would sacrifice his own family to show hospitality toward these strangers is uh, an overreach, to say the least. And the narrative will go on to expose the folly of his move here. but the men of Sodom said, stand back. And they said, and then then immediately they reject him. This fellow came to us as a pilgrim, as as an immigrant, and now he's become our judge. Now we will deal with you worse than with these men. Then they pressed hard against Lot, drew near to breaking down the door, but the men reached out their hands from behind the door, pulled Lot in and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out with groping for the door. Unrepentant evil is absolutely incorrigible. They wore themselves out looking for the door. And such incorrigible evil ultimately exhausts itself and is finally frustrated by God. Maybe that's why Scripture declares there is no rest for the wicked, no satisfaction, no joy, only wearing oneself out. (laughs) But Lot's ill-conceived attempt here at hospitality, defending his angelic visitors by offering his daughters, is, 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 is portrayed as folly here because the very ones they're trying to, he's trying to protect, end up saving his neck showing they don't need his protection. (laughs) Lot needs theirs. Lot doesn't need to offer up his daughters to protect these men who have come to strike judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But what was it he was doing? Perhaps Lot here was less concerned about defending his angelic guests and more about defending a way of life he found comfortable in Sodom. Perhaps the reason why he didn't want them to stay in the square was less about what men would do to them and more about what they would see there and what it would mean for Lot's home. You know, over the last year and a half with COVID and Black Lives Matter and the the Trump fiascos, we have seen Christians on both sides of the political divide, on the right and the left, come out to, quote, defend God. 
like these angels, these representatives of God, God does not need our defense. And in the attempts to defend God, they have compromised, like Lot, their own integrity, their own ethics, both on the right with who the right has aligned with and on the left and who the left has aligned with. The church has been guilty of compromising our our true witness and ethic to defend God. But if in our attempts to defend the Almighty, which is funny if you think about it, we compromise our integrity, it is not God we are defending. It is our way of life. We are defending America or defending this political vision or that political vision, not the kingdom of God. Hospitality toward God means not only receiving God in our own hearts, but believing Him. And as, as we noted, there is the laughter of unbelief throughout our passage here. In, in chapter 17, when God comes to Abraham again to confirm the promise He made to him, He said, listen, I'm going to rename you. No longer will you be exalted, Father. You will be the father of many, Abraham. And I'm going to change Sarah's name because the promised child is going to come through Sarah. No longer is she Sarai, she is Sarah. And Abraham laughs. He laughs in unbelief. Well, will Sarah bear a child in her old age? Well, the same thing happens here. And, 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 and Abraham repents and believes because he performs the sign of circumcision, which Paul says was the seal of the righteousness he had by faith. He obeyed the command to be circumcised in chapter 17 after his laughing unbelief because he converted, he turned and believed God and continued the walk of faith. Well, Sarah likewise laughs. It's why God says you will call his name Isaac because Isaac means laughter because you laughed when I told you. And so Sarah, I love this. It's on, I think it's on the screen. The Lord said, Surely I will return to you in about a year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And now Abram's already heard this, so he's like, yeah, okay, I'm not sure how you're going to do that, but you say you're going to do it, and I, I believe it somehow is going to happen. Sarah, however, was, she's not come out to the meal for whatever reason. It's just Abraham and these three men. Maybe it was cultural. Maybe she was fearful. She's listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased. Sarah's postmenopausal. So Sarah laughs to herself behind the tent door <clears throat> like she snickers, right? And this is comical, right? The, the, like the, the angels hear him, hear her laugh. The Lord hears and says, why did Sarah laugh and say, I will not bear a child? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time, and Sarah will have a son. It will happen. I have said it. But Sarah, behind the tent, I didn't laugh. (laughs) That didn't happen. And I love God's response. No, but you did laugh. (laughs) It's, It's a gentle, perhaps even a playful rebuke. There's another laugh of unbelief, but this one's far more cynical. This time, not with Abraham's family, but Lot's family. On the screen in chapter 19, the men said to Lot in verse 12, Have you anyone else in this house, sons-in-laws, daughters, uh, 
uh, or anyone in the city, let's bring them out right now. we got to go. We're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his two daughters that he had previously offered to the crowds, and said, and said uh, up, get out of the place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But what did, how did his sons-in-law respond? They laughed. They, he seemed to them to be only joking. Which says two things. One, the state of their hearts, where a word of God's judgment can only be received as a joke. And two, perhaps Lot's character. He has not proven to be a man who is to be taken seriously. And the narrative only continues to show us that. Woe to us if we cannot hear a word of judgment. Woe to us if it can only be laughed off as a joke. You know, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment becomes the paradigm of God's judgment against the evil of the nations throughout the Old Testament and the New. Jesus of Nazareth repeatedly refers back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's one instance from the Luke's Gospel. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, life as usual. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. There will be many people who will laugh at the warnings and the threats of God's judgment. It's just as important that we receive the threats of God's judgment seriously as we receive the promise of blessing. There's a natural tendency for us to laugh at both. We laugh when God says, you are far more wicked than you even can begin to recognize. And my justice demands there's a reckoning. And we laugh when God says, you are far more loved than you even dare to imagine. But our laughter needs to turn to a laughing faith, (laughs) a joy to receive both the threat and the promise of his love for us. Now, some have commented here, just a quick remark before we move on, that God has judged Sodom and Gomorrah specifically for sexual immorality. And it's true that it's part of the reasons why. Jude says this, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So certainly, their sin here as as put on full gruesome display at Lot's house is part of the reason. But as I said, the prophets bring up Sodom and Gomorrah throughout the Scriptures, and it isn't just sexual morality. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Now this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, complacent. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things. You know, again, that right-left divide in which the church has sadly been caught up in in this cultural war, on the right, we so stress 
sins of morality, like sexual morality. And on the left, we so stress social injustices like neglecting the poor and the needy. But you'll notice the Bible does not make that divide. It upholds both. Both kinds of sins are worthy of the justice and judgment of God. And we should not be divided over which ones we will champion and call out. We should first humble ourselves that we are guilty of breaking all of them, (laughs) both sides, and with repentant hearts, call our culture to repent in light of the coming judgment, to turn to the God who promises to bless and to love. Well, it's clear that Lot believes God on the one hand, but his heart, his heart struggles to follow. Look what uh, he goes on to say in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, just like Lot said to his son-in-laws, come on, let's go, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept, swept away with the punishment of the city. But he lingered. What on earth is he doing? You know, like, have you ever had those, like, anxiety dreams? Or this may just be me. Like, where you're trying to get out of your house, and you just, you cannot get it together to get out of the house. I, I run sometimes. I wouldn't call myself a runner. But I've had these anxiety dreams about race day, where it's like I got to be at the race line at 6.30, at 6 o'clock. And, like, I can't find my shoes. And then I have my running socks. Like, I'm missing a pair. You know, it's like I cannot get out the door. And it's like that's how I feel when I read this. I'm like, Lot, what are you doing? Go, go. But he's just like, I don't know. Maybe we need this. Maybe we need to get that. You know, the judgment's coming. What are you doing? Why is he lingering? Because his heart is in Sodom. He's been deeply shaped by the city of man. His affections are tied to it. And even though he believes the word of God, that judgment's coming, he lingers. Oh man, is that not me? I know God's judgment's coming on this city of man, but my heart lingers in this city. Because like Lot, I can be disgusted with certain obvious behaviors that are wrong, whether they're personally, personal moral sins or social sins, but there's so many benefits to living in the city. So many comforts. Abraham, on the other hand, you'll notice, is front, stands from a distance, not because he's taken the fundamentalist route of separation and indifference towards the city. Remember what Nate said, when God lets Abraham in on his plan, what does God do? He starts bargaining. It's amazing. It's like this ancient Near Eastern practice, like what you do with your car salesman, you know, like, well, what, about, what if there's 50? Okay, well, what if, what if for lack of five, 45, surely for 45, you're going to, what if, 40, 30, like he's working God down. He's bargaining with the Almighty, not because God is, needs to be uh, persuaded, but because Abraham is needing to be formed. In fact, God says, surely I will reveal this to Abraham, for he is my chosen instrument to teach his children the way of the Lord in righteousness and justice. And here's Abraham speaking to the God for whom nothing is too hard, saying, surely the the judge of all the earth will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And God's like, you're right. Keep going, Abraham. Right? What is He's forming him, shaping him. 
And he gets them all the way down to 10. That's as bold as he goes. You know, all right, not 10. And as Nate pointed out, still weren't 10. But he saved Sodom and Gomorrah. He interceded for the city. He didn't live there. He didn't love it in the sense that his heart and affections weren't tied to it. But he loved it in that he cared for its welfare. And he sought the good of the city. And he prayed and interceded for it. Here, Abraham is prefigures for us Jesus Christ. The Bible says there is one God and only one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus was the intercessor that stood between us, the city of man, and the wrath of God, which was justly fired over our rebellion. And he pleaded for us. He pleads for you and says, if there's just one, and the Father said, there isn't one. No, not one. And Jesus said, what about me? And he stood in the path. He is our intercessor and mediator. Praise God for this son of Abraham. Lot also bargains with the angels over a city but for very different reasons. Take a look at the, at the screen, verse 22. Is that, is that right, 22? No, verse 17. And they brought them out, Lot and his family, and, and one said, escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life. They literally had to pull them out because he lingered so long. And he recognizes this. You've shown me great kindness. But I cannot escape to the hills, perhaps because of his age. He says, uh, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city near enough to flee to. And it's, it's a little one. Let me escape there. Isn't it just a little one? And my life will be saved. And the angel said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city to which you have spoken, of which... Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. Man, Lot sounds like me pleading with God, right? Like, hey, I, I want you to flee the city of man. I'm like, but what about this one thing? It's just it's little. It's just a little thing. Can I just cling to this, right? His heart lingers in the city. He can't leave it. He's grown to love it what philosophers refer to as the cultural liturgies of, the, of his day shaped his heart and shaped his loves. And he loved the city. This is a dangerous place to be. Despite the crushing judgment to come, he clings to a way of life he'd not only been shaped by, but he had grown to find for himself indispensable. Man, what a hard place to be. It's one thing to, 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 to hear the threat of God's judgment and only laugh in cynicism. It's another thing to hear the threat and be unable to repent. I want to, I just can't. My heart's in it. What do you do? A lot is still saved because Abraham intercedes for him. You are still saved because Jesus intercedes for you. Seek him and confess to him where your heart is trapped 
and ask for his release, and he will grant it. But the, the text goes on here, verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, this little city. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Why salt? Probably because what's happening here is the land is being utterly decimated, not just the people, not just the structures, even its agricultural potential. And when a, when a people would destroy another people group in the ancient Near East, they wouldn't just kill people and destroy their land. They would sow salt in the earth so that it doesn't bear fruit to make it utterly infertile. And so this is a picture of utter desolation, utter fruitlessness. But she looks back. Jesus remembers that and tells us to do the same. Look again from Luke's gospel. Jesus says, on that day, the day of judgment, don't look back. Look at verse 32. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. Don't look back. Whoever puts his hand to the plow of the kingdom of God is not worthy if he looks back, Jesus said elsewhere. We don't look back. You know what this requires? Surrender. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever clings to it, even just that little piece, just that little one, God. Whoever seeks to preserve it, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it all. But whoever gives up his life, whoever surrenders it, will gain everything. Friends, we are called to surrender our whole selves before God. To surrender today. What clings to you? To what do you cling? You need to give up to God and surrender. Because the outcome is dramatic. We won't read it, but the rest of our narrative ends a bit like a horror movie. After a while, Lot, some kind of post-traumatic stress, we don't know why it says he left Zoar because he was afraid. He still perhaps in, in a certain faithlessness did not believe God would preserve Zoar. He saw what happened to Sodom It traumatized him. And he was like, I got to get out of here. So he leaves Zohar and goes up to the hills anyway and lives in a cave. Basically lives in the equivalent of an ancient tomb and takes his two daughters with him to essentially die with him. And they, out of their desperation, saying there's no man around, we're stuck here in this tomb with our father. The only way we can prolong our families and our name is to get our father drunk and to, be, and to conceive through him. And so it's kind of a repeat of what happens with Noah and Ham. If you want to go back and read that disturbing scene, Noah gets smashed drunk. Ham sexually takes advantage of his father. Happens now with the two daughters he offered up for violation, now violate him. Get him drunk and conceive the two children through him. It is awful. Remember where Lot began. He had so much stuff, he couldn't even stay in the land of promise. And he ends by himself in a cave with his two incestuous daughters. The city of man ends in restlessness and ultimately is reduced 
to destruction. One commentator said that night when his two daughters uh, got him drunk, so drunk he didn't even know what was happening the whole time, which shows you his foolishness. The text really, I think, puts the blame on Lot, not the two daughters. One commentator said Sodom was reborn in the cave that night. The city of man ends in this kind of destruction and ruin. But the city of God, though it's currently invisible, Abraham dwelt in a land that wasn't his, is pursued by faith. And we right now are pilgrims on the way to the city of God. We should, like Abraham, seek the welfare of the city of man that we are in. Not by offering the city the very best of its own resources, but by offering the city the boundless riches of the city of God. How about you? Are you pursuing and offering to others the boundless riches of the city of God? Are you a pilgrim on the way? Or are you still trapped in the city of man? There's still time. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience and your grace that you are merciful even when we linger like Lot. Lord, you, you pull us out. Or pull our hearts out now where we feel stuck and bring us to the high places where we can see by faith. We can breathe in the air of your spirit or we can set our eyes again on the right things. We pray in Christ's name.